Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Fumi Lola, welcome to Next Economy Now. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm curious if you could share with our listeners, how did you get into this social justice organizing work? What's your story? So I'm glad to be on. I'm glad to be in conversation with you. And yeah, I would love to share. So I would say that um, back in high school, I couldn't really articulate a lot of the things that I realized were um, not right or unfair or unhealthy about what I was perceiving, uh, what was happening in the world. Um, And that had to do with a lot of things, but primarily the one that was kind of most distinct to me was race relations and um, racial injustice. I didn't have the vocabulary to articulate a lot of the concerns that I had. Um, Again, because I was, you know, I was just kind of a teenager. I hadn't studied um, any of the um, areas of research that might help me to articulate my thoughts more clearly. It wasn't until I got to college that I started to take the classes that would help me to understand exactly, you know, on a structural and institutional level, what I was seeing happening in this country um, and largely in the world, um, why, you know, political and economic systems function the way that they do and how they inform culture and human behavior. So once I started to kind of understand structurally a bit why these things were happening, um, then I was empowered to you to be of service in some particular way, to make myself available to attempt to do the organizing work that might help to at least locally within my own community help to um, impact some level of transformation of systems that are not helpful, that are not productive, um, that are actually harmful and often violent. And I started to organize with other students. Um, other student activists on campus in undergrad. And um, we would host a number of different events um, that essentially we would be in conversation with the larger student body about all of these themes that we are undereducated on. Um, Many of them being a number of different political conversations that were not really popular at the time because I feel like in popular culture now there's more of a conversation about um, social injustice and, you know, the systems that facilitate social injustice. Whereas, you know, five, six, and seven years ago, um, you almost were seen as eccentric or, you know, just doing too much when you really pointed out in a very plain and clear way all of the horrible things that happen under our noses that we don't flinch in response to. And um, essentially, in, in organizing with the, this uh, student collective that I was in, we would also, uh, when necessary or when we felt compelled to, um, if there were some type of event that happened um, in society that we felt need that that needed attention, that the student body needed to turn their attention to. Um, We would organize, you know, rallies and protests and um, walkouts. And we were not just kind of advancing um, conversations around racial injustice, but also students' rights, Um, the privatization of of public education, the privatization of other public services that should not be privatized, all of these types of things. And inevitably, um, at the end of my time in undergrad, um, it was immediately following um, the, my actual, my, um, 
my graduation party after I graduated from undergrad, where George Zimmerman was um, acquitted after the you know tragic incident where he essentially murdered Trayvon Martin, um, and it was that was one of the incidents that really galvanized the um, I would say kind of the mainstream conversation around anti-black state violence, and it was in that um, moment where we gathered as a collective. It was about a few dozen of us, I want to say about 24 of us, gathered in Los Angeles and formed a collective called Justice for Trayvon Martin Los Angeles. We started to organize under this name, under this banner, and we were exclaiming that Black Lives Matter. Um, and th there were a number of different people that were exclaiming, you know, under this banner and then using it as a rallying call, as a rallying cry. And, you know, fast forward, months later, we see that a lot of folks are using this banner, are using this almost as a, a new, almost kind of like a modern civil rights um, um, rallying cry. And um, in essence, uh, that was the original articulation of, or rather the first protest uh, for what would be, what we now would call the Black Lives Matter movement. And that was in the summer of 2013. So you mentioned this notion of culture and there, it feel, and even a you noticed a transition in what was culturally normal to talk about and now to now. Could you talk about your work um, and your current project and um, what you are achieving in your work around culture and cultural shifts? What you so, hope to see? Mm, I really appreciate that question. Um, I think about that often is how does culture um, get transformed and what actually is culture? I think that a people's culture are um, their, their art, their food, their language, um, just the way that the humans in any society engage with each other. And I think that culture can only be transformed if people are moved enough to see that something is not effective or, um, or is, is, is not productive in whatever given society. Part of, I would say, my cultural work is to create art that can be helpful in allowing for people to see a perspective outside of the one that they have. Um, hoping to influence people to have the emotional intelligence to be able to communicate across ideological difference for the sake of creating a more just system. So that means, you know, dealing with somebody that's, you know, quite different from you in a way that might be extremely uncomfortable, but if, but the awareness that the only way for us to kind of evolve in the way that we claim that we want to evolve socially is to be able to be in conversation with sometimes people that are not of our in our silos that are not of our division of intellect that um, don't organize in the way that we organize but the only way to transform culture is to engage in some level of collectivity or coalition it cannot change with just one small group and so in my work I attempt to or in my cultural work or my creative work I attempt to attempt to influence people to be more willing to hear out others that usually we wouldn't be in conversation with and specifically, your current project, um, Woke Black Folk, I'd love to invite you to share how you um, came up with that project and also a little bit about what you're hoping that brings up in, in our world. Yeah, absolutely. It can it was a it was it came out of a necessity, you know, it was urgent and it felt really imperative for me to begin to cultivate that piece, not because, you know, I just had an idea and I felt creative and I wanted to expand on this idea, but rather it felt more urgent than that. It, what I was seeing was specifically within uh, Black communities, and I'm talking specifically here, you know, in America, and then even more specifically what I was seeing in my own personal communities in um, Los Angeles, was that um, people that folks 
within the Black community here that have different ideologies, um, political ideologies, as it pertains to a number of things, whether that be gender, sexuality, um, class and economics, religion and spirituality, mental health, all of these things, that um, they essentially were not in communication at all with folks that thought differently from them, because that can just lead to conflict. And we like to be around people that we agree with. It's more comfortable that we're people that we're like. But what I found was that in the in the um, in black in the black community, it is there's something very particular around the kind of urgency of anti-black state violence. It creates an imperative for black collectivity, meaning that black people almost have no choice but to figure out how to engage in some level of collectivity or to work together, even across ideological difference, because um, the imperative of combating anti-Black state violence demands a collective response or a collective reaction or a collective effort. And so I was, I was kind of, how you would say, I was disappointed and discouraged by the fact that I was in a number of different social justice communities that all talked a lot of shit about each other, about the other communities. So for instance, if there is the um, academic community of social justice folks that are that have devoted their scholarship to doing social justice work, um, to doing the work necessary to transform ideas and systems, um, because scholarship is central to that, um, but they are not in conversation, you know, with the other folks that do the grassroots organizing that are not part of academia, because maybe they feel like they're, you know, those people, their their assessment is not nuanced enough, you know, they they haven't really done the research, they really, you know. They, they don't really have the real facts in the way the scholars would have. Um, and, you know, you have folks that of varying positionalities as it pertains to their politic um, that I observed were not really willing, it seemed, or able um, emotionally to share space with folks that were very, very different from them because it's, it can be very triggering, you know, to be around people that say things that are against your political positioning. Um, but what I realized with that was that there was validity to um, all of their standpoints in the various, I would say, for the sake of this um, production that I'm talking about, I was dealing more specifically with four different com communities of thought. Um, and one of them is almost kind of like the liberal, neoliberal, almost leaning toward moderate type of perspective um, informed, by, um, informed by Christian um, um, ideology, right, in terms of a religious ideology. Um, so, and then there was, again, the academic, and then there was the radical um, person who is very much anti-capitalist, who is anti-black uh, anti -black state violence and all of these things. And then you have the, um, I think I mentioned um, the the person who I would say is the cultural nationalist, the Afrocentric person who has um, antiquated, rigid, patriarchal um, understanding of gender and how these things are just not helpful. So these four people being in conversation with each other would be very different because would be very not different but difficult because all of them think very differently. So what do we do when people that think differently have a vested interest in engaging in a collectivity or engaging in some level of, you know, coalition with each other? What happens when they actually are in essence, you know, in order to reach their political goals, um, that it's imperative 
that they actually begin to be in conversation with larger masses of people and not the smaller group in which that they, they belong to. And essentially, I felt like this was not necessarily a microcosm, but an example or an, um, almost just kind of like a portrait of what I would say is was going on large, more largely in America. We understand that like to say that America is polarized is such an understatement. Um, but I think that more than um, America and oftentimes kind of the world as it pertains to global politics in general, um, to say that it's polarized is one thing and to say, but rather to say that people are not trained to have the emotional capacity to be able to hear things that challenge what they know to be true because it makes people feel like you're challenging their personhood and it makes them highly uncomfortable to the extent that they might walk away from a conversation or information that might help them to evolve intellectually, but because of the discomfort, they don't want to hear it. This is why you have and how you have people that still hold really antiquated notions about race, gender, sexuality, because they don't want to change because it challenges what they have always believed or for a long time believed to be true. And if you challenge their ideology, they feel like you're challenging them and it makes them uncomfortable. But that's the only way that humans will evolve. And that is um, what I kind of try to engage in my work. Yeah. Amazing. I'm so grateful for this precious time we get to talk about culture because honestly it is one of it's one of our most influential layers of our business of our mm. businesses and mm-hmm. we don't talk enough about what you just mentioned the the how the fear of shifting your own ideology can can stop you from connect connecting con- connectivity and collectivism yeah. um could Absolutely. you talk a little bit about um because meritocracy is so much a part, or the myth of meritocracy is so much a part right. of our economic system, could you talk about how that myth of meritocracy and how that plays out in shaping inequality, cultural attitudes about economy, things like that? Absolutely, absolutely. So meritocracy asserts that um, the person who works the hardest um, and that does the right thing um, will succeed the most, that we are given essentially, the underlying tone is that we are given equal opportunity in this land, um, that, the, that the structure of this country creates it so that the individual gets to um, have control over what their life will be. Now, that's a narrative that's easy to receive as true because it's like, yeah, I have control over my life. I get to decide whether or not I'm going to study and do well and get this degree or get this job, or I get to decide if I'm going to work hard. What it does, but what it also does um, is that it erases the structural elements that makes certain groups more vulnerable to the possibility of not having access to certain resources. So if you have, for instance, um, understanding the legacy of the socioeconomic, the stifling of socioeconomic advancement for, for instance, Black communities in this country, the way in which, for instance, uh, if I were to give an example, in the 1960s, if a Black person, an adult, were to go into a bank who lives, you know, in a poor community um, that is primarily a people of color, or rather, you know, maybe poor uh, to kind of middle class, goes into a bank trying to get a loan, and they're not able to get a loan because they refused the loan because of the neighborhood that they live in. But another person who was white, who maybe even is of a similar um, economic uh, background, or rather is a middle class or what have you, is easily able to get that loan you of course understand that they're going to be able to have some level of access that the, that the person in the black community did not have access to. And so what is the legacy of all of these kind of 
individual ways that these things happen? What is the legacy of the fact that like communities of color and poor communities are hyper-policed? So then that means that they're hyper-incarcerated. What does that actually mean? How does that end up affecting the families in these communities? It's important yeah. to, to make sure that our listeners have a baseline understanding of the myth of meritocracy and how that plays out. And I imagine that myth informs cultural attitudes and you are coming in with your work at this level of culture. So I'm just wondering, um, yeah, how does the myth of meritocracy yeah, play out in shaping those cultural attitudes almost from a perspective of how can we change or, or help that inform the um, acupuncture points that we choose to take in our work? Mm. Um, you know, you saying that the myths inform culture that it's almost as if the misinformation, the lack of nuanced perspective as it pertains to economy and who is allowed to prevail, right, in terms of which groups are allowed to prevail or have been historically. Meritocracy, the narrative of meritocracy and us and U.S. being a meritocracy um, is easily, is easy to consume when you are going based off of representation as your understanding of um, equality. So if there's a Black president and you say, you know, there's there, there must be equality, there's been a Black president, or you see that there are some now more women that are coming into greater positions of power politically, or you see that now queer people have the ability to um, um, be able to be married legally, all of these things, that representational progress is not always a reflection of deep institutional transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for people to understand sometimes because they see something, but, but what's under the image is actually quite different from just what your eyes are telling you, right? Where you just see diversity and that must mean that everybody has the same chance. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a difference between diversity, the aesthetic of the diverse versus the transformation of systems, which really creates greater, what we could say, equity, right? So how do we begin to debunk these myths and inform more nuanced cultural narratives? I think that we have conversations like this. I think that we create art that challenges mainstream notions that, that oftentimes don't get challenged about meritocracy because it's still so deeply invested in people's ideologies you know even f folks that don't think that they think that way think that way and it's very much deeply invested in the ideologies that inform this current administration and that's really obvious i love what you just said even folks that don't think they think that way think that way yeah we talk about um we talk about that in in whiteness and and white how to be a, a white ally or accomplice and how um we might be perceiving our white liberal nature as being additive, but in some ways it can be just as um, destructive and, and, um, and, and not actually being an ally or accomplice. I wonder if you, if you have any thoughts about, um, uh, about that too. Just you, you mentioned around how diversity and the ability to speak with someone from another background or perspective is, is critical from, from, um, from what you mentioned, uh, combating state violence and, and structural uh, racism. I wonder if if you have any thoughts too. Many of our listeners are um, are coming from a place of wanting to be allies or accomplices um, to mm -hmm. Black solidarity. Yeah, I would say that oftentimes, like when I'm when that question is posed to me, that um, 
at listening, of course, is very important and studying so that you don't come into spaces asking for information and intellectual labor. You know, I don't get it. Just explain to me how I can be better. That type of thing. It almost can be a bit triggering for folks that are in a in more vulnerable groups because they're just like I'm trying to stay alive and to consider how to change this thing and not educate at the moment so doing research because the the resources are so much out there um coming forth to spaces um where there's some level of work being done or organizing being done and then knowing what it is that you do or that you're good at and then offering that service right so it's like you know it's, it's okay to say you know what I don't know exactly what you all need. I'm open to hearing that, but this is what I know how to do well. Is there any way in which that can be of service to your efforts? You know, it's not always about now I got to figure out how to be, you know, a big activist. No, you just have to offer what it is that you know how to do because likely it's needed in some way, shape or form. You know, there's a likelihood of that. Um, that would be, I think that that would, and then doing the work of talking to, for instance, if we're talking about specifically white allies, doing the work of talking to your family, your community members that will hear you out on issues that they would not hear me out on or somebody else out on that looks like me. Because maybe even though they don't think that they're thinking this, that their underlying assumption might be that I might be a little bit overreacting, that I might be a little bit overly emotional, like, you know, maybe I might be exaggerating a bit, but that, you know, of course, racism exists, but maybe she's, you know, putting on too much. And again, those are the narratives that are not said out loud, but that are silently thought oftentimes, and oftentimes more specifically by white people, if we're being quite clear. So then somebody um, who functions as an ally would go into those spaces and say, actually, you know, this is what I know to be true. This is what, um, this is what I've learned, you know, about how privilege functions. Um, And doing that so that um, folks of color, for instance, don't necessarily have to try to attempt to share that information that oftentimes is not received or received on deaf ears, you know. So talking to the people that we can't reach. Thank you for giving such great vocabulary and tools um, for for people to use in this um, constant and long process. Um, yeah. I'm curious, what would be different, a couple of thoughts, if we truly created an economy that works for all with no one left out? What would be different if we created an economy that works for all with no one left out? I think that there would be greater, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is that there would be greater innovation. But there also would be, we would just see different types of humans being elevated more. Um, We're in a time right now where like folks are, there's some level of an attempt to create more diversity um, in media. um, But as it pertains to the systems and the institutions that govern the economics of this country, it is still um, largely white male dominated. So what would be different? I actually think that there would be, um, I imagine that there would be less poverty of this country is too developed and too advanced um, to have as much poverty and as much homelessness as it has. Um, If there were greater diversity in the spaces that govern the economics of this country, um, there would be greater intention to mitigate harm. Um, And in that, 
it, there would be, I imagine, an equaling or an attempt to equal the playing field so that money goes to educational resources. Money goes to funding schools, funding mental health facilities, funding after-school programs, funding all of these things that research has shown time and time again make communities safer, which then allows for those communities to actually possibly have an equal opportunity to thrive. Not this kind of like, you know, you're starting three steps behind the, your, you know, your counterpart from across town who goes to a private school and eats a fresh meal every day, you know, but you're over here in a food desert and in an overcrowded classroom. And then for us to sit here and say that America's a meritocracy and everybody has an equal chance, anybody that's paying any small amount of attention can see that that's not true. Mm. So again, I think that it, that I think that poverty would decrease. And I think that, um, there would that we would use the money that goes into, I would say, for instance, um, these the I would say that the money that goes to developing, for instance, prisons. Um, there's a 3.6 billion dollar jail plan that's on you know on the rise in Los Angeles right now. What would it be that rather than creating two jails, that those resources, that those funds, are used to actually um, develop the very things that make communities safer, that prevent crime from happening, rather than waiting for the crime to happen and incarcerating the individuals. What would happen if we used our funds differently, right? Um, because I imagine that bodies in prisons can actually be relatively profitable for certain people. It's damaging and violent to poor communities of color, and it's profitable to others that, you know, hold stocks in these spaces. So is our goal for humans to be safer? Um, and to have the equal opportunity to thrive? Or is it for a small contingent of people in this country to make more money? Um, and those are questions that we have to ask ourselves. When, if there are ways that listeners, one, one question we really feel important to ask on these interviews is, how can our listeners support your work right now? What, what can we do to uplift this, um, the cultural narratives that you're, um, helping to create, um, and, and just how can, how can listeners support, support you? Thank you for asking that. That's really, I really appreciate that. Um, I would say that the way that folks can, I'll start with this, that the way that folks can support the movement work that is being done is to remain aware by following, for instance, following on social media, the platforms that we've created, whether that be Black Lives Matter Los Angeles or Black Lives Matter in general, our pages, and being aware of whatever initiatives and efforts that we're working on. So it's really important that folks get behind um, us when we push forward um, an initiative that is critiquing or challenging a $3.6 billion jail plan because we want folks to understand that there's a different way of, of, of navigating or facilitating greater community safety than to just um, incarcerate more of the most vulnerable folks. So when we push those initiatives, we, we expect and we hope, rather not expect that we hope that the, that communities will come and sign whatever petitions we need um, to be signed and to share those, to show up. Sometimes what folks can do is show up to general meetings and offer a hand 
hand in whatever way possible at your local chapter. And there's a number of different organizations doing phenomenal work. I know that I can for sure speak to the work of Black Lives Matter, but that's just one of so many. Um, I would say um, specifically if we're talking about the cultural productions that I've created um, in terms of woke Black folk and these types of things, I would say to just um, follow the journey, essentially, um, to come and, you know, meet me on my platforms. And I always try my best to facilitate the conversations that I think are important. And I always present, you know, whatever it is that I feel we can do together, you know, in terms of the people that are on my networks with me engaging in these conversations. So it's really just to stay in the know um, and be present with us in this work. And that when there's a call to do something that, you know, if it's in within your means or within your ability or capacity to do that thing. And the calls come out quite often. Thank you. And I should mention, I found out about your work through um, this video, Feminists, What Were They Thinking? <laughs> so just a shout out to that um, too, as a resource for our listeners. And as we bring our conversation to a close today, is there anything else that you would want to share with our listeners, um, listeners who are um, supporters of the next economy, whether it be in their, um, in their individual life design choices or in their entrepreneurial endeavors, any advice you would give or, or final thoughts to share? Mm. I think the first thing that comes to mind is to do what is necessary to advance your work to make your life more fruitful, happy, and beautiful, but to make sure that there's always a centering of being helpful in the world. That if we stop viewing um, activism as this grand thing that only special people do, then everybody will feel compelled to pitch in because it will be normal. It will become normalized and natural that when something is wrong, that people feel compelled to say something or do something about it. I imagine that we'd be so much better if we didn't, and I understand why activists um, get kind of, um, how you would say celebrated in the way that they are, but what would it be like if we didn't clap, clap for and celebrate activists so much and just said, yeah, it seems like they're doing what they're supposed to do. This is what humans should do that if we recognize that something needs adjustment, that we just put forth whatever um, energy and resources that we can in attempting and helping to adjust it. And that that doesn't mean that you strip the joy from your life because now your life is devoted to dealing with all of the bad things. That's not true at all. Um, that there's a great deal of joy in helping um, to change the things that we know need to change. Absolutely. Um, and if folks want to hear more about my work, I guess the most kind of significant platform for me, if you want to join the conversation with me, um, my Instagram specifically is Fumi underscore Lola. So that's F-U-N-M-I underscore L-O-L-A. And so, you know, if you meet me there, then we can continue the conversation because I share all of my, my work on there. I'm so glad to have this conversation. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.